You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. This is episode number 73. What matters most? Scientific advice, role play on estimates, a replay from the PSI conference in 2018. an upcoming webinar on leadership because lots of what you will listen to during this episode requires a lot of leadership. It requires influencing, negotiating, communicating, building relationship, building trust, all these different things. And if you want to be successful at it, you need to have these leadership skills. So our webinar will be one piece in the puzzle to bring you closer to becoming an effective leader, uh, an effective statistician. You can sign up for this webinar at theeffectivestatistician.com slash leadership webinar. Just go there, sign up, tell your colleagues about it, and I'll see you soon at this webinar. It will be pretty awesome. So, in today's episode... We are uh, just giving you a replay from a really, really, really nice um, session that I participated in the 2018 PSI conference. If you have been there on the Wednesday morning, it was really, really awesome. It was lots of fun, lots of really, really, really nice insights as we tackled this estimates problem from a regulatory perspective, from a patient perspective, from an HDA perspective, and from a sponsor perspective. And through this discussion, you get a much better kind of point of view of why it's so difficult to come up with an estimate that satisfies everybody. Maybe it's actually impossible. And that's, that's actually a valid point in having different estimates for different stakeholders. So stay tuned. We have really, really nice uh, people on the show. And I'm pretty sure you'll like it. This episode, this podcast, is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, where this is also sitting, um, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. The reduced rate is just £20 per year for non-high-income countries and only £95 for high-income countries. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. So thank you for joining uh, our session today with the title What Matters Most? Uh, scientific Advice Roleplay. But I think this is not like the usual normal session and therefore I think it deserves a different uh, sort of title slide to actually kick this all off. So as you all know, this is all within the larger production of the PSI conference. And the scene that we will be focusing on here today is 
a scene where a sponsor is actually seeking joint scientific advice from a regulatory agency and from an HTA body. So my name is Mona, for those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the directors. Uh, I also have co-directors, of course, Rachel and, and Anna. And we will be using a very special camera today to enhance the clarity and visibility of this whole topic, which is called ICH E9R1. And yeah, so this is essentially the scene that we will be focusing on. And of course, we have a great cast for this. So first of all, we have... David Wright, who is representative <laughs> for the regulatory agency of the Netherlands. Then we have Alexander Schacht, who is representative for the HEA agency of Wonderland. Then we also have a sponsor, or a representative uh, from a sponsor, Oliver Keen, who's working for Patient First. And finally, of course, we know that as the title is What Matters Most to Patients, we also need a patient, right? So we do have a patient, <laughs> Stephen Ruberg, who is suffering from COPD. So the scene that we will be looking at is really in COPD. And we will be looking at what is the treatment effect measure, if you want, or estimate, let's say, within this framework that is most relevant for these different parties. Um, and the aim is not to come to a consensus. So we have like a short... Uh, discussion, right? So the aim is not to come necessarily to a consensus, but to show you a couple of the discussion points and uh, interesting aspects that may come up in such discussions. And of course, you are not only here to be like seated there and, and watching it, but you will also get the opportunity to actually participate in this. So towards the end, we'll leave like 10, 15 minutes so that you can contribute to the scene yourself. So, without saying much more, I would then hand over to the patient, so he can maybe first of all give us his perspective, and then we sort of go into this natural uh, joint scientific advice type of setup. So, over to you, Steve. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me to this dialogue. First, I want to note that I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. I'm a patient with COPD. I want to tell you what it's like I want to tell you what I want, what concerns me, and what's important to me so that you can do better research. Do you know what it's like when you cannot breathe? Maybe you were underwater once and running out of breath. The only thing you can think about is getting to the surface so you can take your next breath. Did you panic? Were you frightened? That's what I face each day. That I might go underwater and not be able to get to the surface. That's what frightens me most. And it's always there on my mind. I fear hospitalization. I get scared when I have what they call an exacerbation. I'm sure you've all had the experience of being out of breath. Perhaps you had to run or to climb a lot of steps quickly. You know how you take deep breaths, your chest heaving to get as much air as possible. What if you could not get enough breath, no matter how hard you tried to inhale? What if you constantly felt a little out of breath, that each breath was an effort, that each breath was not automatic, but maybe a semi-conscious or even conscious effort to expand your lungs and pull in as much air every time with every breath. I hate shortness of breath. I hate that I cannot do what I want to do because of it. I hate it because it's always with me. My doctor says I have to improve my FEV1 and my dyspnea score. He says that the key to my quality of life is to adhere to my medications. Believe me, 
I adhere to my medications, all three of them, every day, even though it's wearisome, since they are my lifeline, my rescue, my way of life. I hear you're working on a new injectable medication, and I do not mind the idea of infrequent injections. But here's what I want from a drug in the following order of importance. Number one, I want this new drug to be more effective at helping me breathe. If I take this medication, will I go to the hospital less? Will I be able to do more physical activities and for longer times? Is it possible that this new medication might be a cure for me? Number two, what are the chances of having a side effect? And what, si what are the side effects I should know about? I know there will be some side effects, but unless they are disastrous or catastrophic, I will work through them with my doctor, or we can decide to give up and try a new medication. If I can breathe better, do more, feel more comfortable, I will figure out the side effects, again, unless they are really, really bad. I've tried new medications before that have not worked, and I want to get off of them as soon as possible. Sometimes my doctor says I must stick with the new medications to give them a chance to work. Well, that's easy to say, but when you are underwater or your chest is heaving, you do not want to wait very long to see if the new medication helps. So if, it's, if this new medication doesn't work, how long will I have to take it for me or my doctor to know? Rest assured, this is huge on my mind. I have tried new medications that work initially, yet seem to lose their effect over time. Number four, <clears throat> I'm appreciative of the benefits, but sometimes I wonder if it's worth it. If the benefit persists long enough, then okay. If the benefit wanes quickly, then I might as well have never started on such a new treatment. Number five, <clears throat> I want to get off my other medications. Can you simplify my life, make it easier to control my disease? If I continue to take this new medication, will I be able to take fewer medications or use less of my existing medications? This is important to me and cheaper too. Number six, how does this injection work? If I take this new medication for the rest of my life, do I do it? Do I have to come to the doctor's office to get it done? Is it a quick injection or a longer infusion? Does the injection hurt? And number seven, I'm worried about the cost of such a new medication. I understand that's a separate issue for some of you, but since you ask what's important to me, there it is, cost. Please help develop Please help develop more effective treatments for COPD. Please give me and my doctor the answers to the concerns and questions that I have just enumerated. Before I change my meds or add a new med, I want to know as much as possible about what happens when I take it. I do not want to end up in the hospital emergency room. I do not want to drown. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving us that, that patient perspective. It's very relevant and I'm sure that the sponsor as well as the regulator and the HEA body will take that into account in their discussion. So with that, uh, I think our sponsor would like to, um, to give us his presentation on what drug they are developing. Could well, we have the patient first slides? Well, while the slides are coming up, first of all, I'd like to thank the agency and the HTA for the opportunity to come along and uh, talk to us about our new medication from Patient First Pharmaceuticals. And a particular thanks to Steve for outlining the, um, the issues a patient has and um, what matters most to him. 
The new treatment we've got is a biological treatment for COPD. Um, it's called IL-99. Um, as you know, we submitted a briefing document to you, and I think we have agreement on um, the dose that we're going to use, which will be one milligram by injection every four weeks. And we have agreement on the endpoints. The primary endpoint of the studies will be exacerbations, which are defined as a worsening of COPD symptoms that require oral steroids or antibiotics. We also have agreement on a quality of life measure as a secondary endpoint, a fairly standard one, uh, SGRQ, that's a standard quality of life measurement in this area. The topic for today's discussion is the S demand for the two pivotal trials, 506-2018 and 506-2019, identical trials. And specifically, what we'd like to seek your advice on is the strategy for intercurrent events. So to move on to trial 506-2018 in severe COPD, the objective is to compare the efficacy and safety of our new IL-99 biological treatment versus placebo, a superiority study. It's going to be a 52-week phase three study, double-blind parallel group. What's important to understand here is this is on top of standard of care therapy. So subjects will maintain what they're currently, um, currently taking. We will have planned follow-up of, of off-treatment for subjects who prematurely discontinue their randomized treatment. But even with that, we do expect that some subjects will fail to complete the study. So as I said, the inclusion criteria is to be on maximal standard of care therapy. So that, in this case, is triple therapy with a long-acting bronchodilator, an inhaled corticosteroid, and a long-acting muscarinic treatment. And they must have been using this triple therapy for at least a year. To get into the trial, they, they must be not completely controlled on this triple therapy. So they must have had at least one exacerbation in the previous year. So the triple therapy is not eliminating all of their exacerbations. The population, to go through the classic parts of the S-demand uh, framework, the population is defined by those inclusion-exclusion criteria, which I've just gone through. The primary variable will be the number of exacerbations the, pa the patient experiences. And we will compare that between treatments by the rate of exacerbations, the ratio of the rates of exacerbations on IL-99 compared to placebo. Secondary variable will be the quality of life as measured by the SGRQ instrument. And we will average that over the average the SGRQ score over the time points in the study. And the key intercurrent event that we'd like to seek your advice on is treatment discontinuation. So what we're expecting on the placebo treatment I put up there in terms of treatment discontinuation, we're expecting that around 20% of patients in the study will discontinue their, their randomized medication, well, their placebo medication. Uh, based, this is based on our previous trials in this area and our previous experience um, in COPD. We're expecting around 2% to die, other adverse events around 9%, a lack of efficacy about 2%, very low, as a given as a primary reason. And a number of subjects, a significant number, will, will simply choose to withdraw because they don't want to be part of a clinical trial. And the reason they, they give is the burden of study procedures. What we're expecting with our new drug is to have similar discontinuations due to adverse event, but overall fewer discontinuations. Um, and the only adverse event that we're expecting, um, that we anticipate to be of a higher frequency in the active arm compared to the placebo arm, is injection site reactions. 
these are generally mild in nature and don't cause a patient to discontinue from the studies. So what's our proposed strategy for treatment discontinuation? Well, what we're proposing is strategy five in the ICHE9 document, the while on treatment strategy. We'll supplement this with an analysis of the frequency and the reason for treatment discontinuation. As we've heard, it's very important to the patient to know whether they're going to discontinue due to an adverse event, whether they'll discontinue due to lack of efficacy. We will include these analyses in um, in our package. But the primary uh, analysis will be a while on treatment we're proposing, will be a while on treatment strategy for discontinuation. And what's the rationale for that? Well, in our view, and we are patient-first pharmaceuticals after all, um, our view is that this will be the most informative to the the prescriber and patient. A patient who sees an estimate in um, in a clinical trial, an estimated treatment effect, I my view is they don't realise that that's actually, if you use a treatment policy strategy, that would be an average of taking the treatment and not taking the treatment. I think what's most informative to a patient is what actually happens when they take the treatment, and that's what they're most interested in knowing. Another issue that complicates a treatment policy type strategy uh, for this particular situation is that once they discontinue, um, if they discontinue treatment, they're their doctors may put them on to an alternative medication. And in particular, I know a pharmaceutical company called GSK is currently developing a biologic on <laughs> which I'm told is extremely effective. So, <laughs> so with the worry is that there will be, people will take these alternative medications and that will dilute the efficacy of, of our drug. It won't fairly reflect the efficacy of, of the IL-99 treatment. Finally, and most importantly... As you know, you're making a judgment on um, benefit-risk of medicines. And we believe in order to make a fair assessment of that, the estimate for efficacy and the estimate for safety should be, the, should be the same, done under the same principles. So for safety, we're proposing a very standard approach to safety, which is a while on treatment. We're going to summarise adverse events while the patient is actually taking the medication. So it seems to us for a fair assessment of of benefit, we should do a while-on-treatment assessment of efficacy. Then we're matching the two strategies. Obviously, we will look at adverse events that occur after, the, um, after people have, have finished the treatment. But to us, the, the key assessment of benefit-risk should be while-on-treatment for efficacy and while-on-treatment for safety. So I'd, I'd welcome your comments on our proposal. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Oliver. So just a formal welcome to everyone here, the new home of the European Medicines Agency. Um, I I hope you agree that it's nearly as nice a location in Canary Wharf. The gold taps in the bathroom are particularly nice. Um, But um, but, but thank you for your presentation, and and also a warm welcome to Steve as the patient. If you've got any questions throughout the discussion, please do stop me, um, because... Uh, patients are, of course, central to everything we do here at CHMP. So, just like to make that point. So, don't feel uh, that uh, um, if you want to interrupt, please do. Mm. Um, so, thanks for the presentation. I've just got a few clarifications, if I may. Um, in terms of the briefing book, that I, it, it was rather large, Oliver. If you could sort of manage it a bit better next time, it would be appreciated. There is limited time for preparation for these meetings, and it, it is a bit of a struggle. So if you could uh, 
could, could work on your team on that would be appreciated. Well, well, thanks for the comments. There are, there are some agencies who do review it in a lot of detail. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. And, uh, <laughs> the, 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 um, and as you know, there are other drugs in development in this area from, for other companies. But, um, but, but, um, but anyway, on to the, uh, the matter in hand. Um, so just to clarify... Uh, the aim of this treatment, um, obviously you're, you're talking about a fairly severe COPD population um, and you're interested, I'm just clarifying what you would like in your label. So is this going to be a, a long-term treatment for COPD or do you imagine most patients will only take one or two injections? It would help me in uh, deciding which estimate makes more, most sense if you could clarify that for me. Mm. Sure, that, that's a good, good question. Um, we're not expecting that this um, medication will be disease-modifying. So um, we're seeing this as a chronic treatment for COPD. Okay, thank you. Um, now, moving on to your choice. So I, I agree with you in terms of your um, decision to discount treatment policy. Um, as, a, as a suitable estimand, I can see that with all the other things going on in this arena, it would complicate matters in the evaluation of the efficacy of your drug. So I agree with that. But you only briefly described the possibility of hypothetical, um, and just, you just say that it requires extrapolation beyond the data that is observed. That doesn't necessarily make it a bad idea to me. I wonder if you could um, give that... A, what did you consider in, 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 when you, in terms of hypothetical estimates? Yes, we, um, we looked at the issue of hypothetical estimates very closely. Um, clearly, that's another, another option that we could have proposed. Um, what worries us about a hypothetical estimate is the nature of... Um, well, it's in the, in the, the label... It's a hypothetical thing that would have happened if patients had continued to take the treatment. Um, what we want to describe is what actually happens while they do take the treatment. So there's no extrapolation into unobserved data. There's no need for these fancy statistical methods that our statistician keeps proposing to me. <laughs> um, but what about alternative hypothetical strategies that don't do that? Uh, ones that, for example, if... Uh, when Steve stops taking his medication, um, we could um, model what would happen if he didn't take other medications. Obviously, you know in real life that he would do, and that would cloud the evaluation of the efficacy of your drug, but instead trying to model what would have happened if they weren't on additional therapies. Did you consider that option? Yes, I mean... That's a good point. I mean, I haven't outlined here our complete statistical strategy. Um, and, of course, we would seek to do alternative estimates, supplementary estimates, as well as the primary estimate, which we're proposing as well on treatment. Um, the approach you're outlining is, is very sensible. Um, we would agree that, that um, we would include that as one of the supplementary uh, estimates in the package. Um, as I said, though, the concern there is, um, as you said, you have to make assumptions about what would happen to these patients if they hadn't have taken the, um, the medication, the alternative medication. So there are assumptions there that we have to build in. Um, we, would ha we would have to build in sensitivity analyses to those assumptions. We have to model it. Um, and that worries us somewhat in, in putting that forward as the primary estimate strategy. Okay, thank you. And then... Uh, 
uh, just to help me understand the while on treatment strategy in terms of the how you estimate this estimand, um, just wondered if you could clarify. So if, for example, Steve takes the medication once and has no exacerbations in that month, uh, but then there's another patient that takes it for a whole year and doesn't have any exacerbations, how, how is that handled in the analysis that you would propose for this estimand? Um, yes, we, we're using a, um, a negative binomial, we're proposing a negative binomial approach for the analysis of exacerbations. Um, within that analysis, um, there's, there's a uh, feature of that analysis that you model the variation of patients across patients as well as within patients. So you don't count a patient who's been studied for 12, 12 months. They don't get 12 times the weight of a patient who's only accounted for one month. So that would be accounted for in the analysis. Okay. And then, so, but in terms of all these treatment discontinuations, then, so, if, uh, similarly, if somebody discontinues due to an adverse event, they would be treated exactly the same way as someone who'd discontinue due to uh, the burden of the study in the analysis. Is that true? That's correct, because the, the nature of a while on treatment estimate is to summarise the experience of the patient while they're taking the treatment. We believe that's the most important thing to the patient and the prescriber. I think the key feature of, of this medication, and what we're expecting from previous trials, is that the the percentage of patients who discontinue due to adverse event, we think, will, if anything, will be lower on the active, active medication. And similarly for the percentage of patients who discontinue due to lack of efficacy. I think an important, as I said, an important supplementary analysis of these trials is going to be to compare the percentage of patients who discontinue due to lack of efficacy and the percentage of patients who discontinue due to adverse event. We believe that's an important piece of information for the patient. Mm -hmm. Uh, but do you agree that the ones who withdraw due to the burden of the study, I mean, we don't know anything about them in terms of whether they're is a good or bad reason. It could really have been due to the study. Yes. Um, or it, you, some of those patients, undoubtedly, it might not have been, but we just don't know. Whereas the other ones, we actually do know it was a bad thing that happened. So, so it seems strange to treat them the same. Yeah, I mean, to go back to your point, I mean, there always um, there is this kind of, we, we would agree there is this ambiguity around um, reason for withdrawal and you know, how reliable is the information that we're collecting. We as a sponsor will work very hard to make sure that those reasons um, actually reflect the patient experience. Uh, we have found in our experience, um, because of regulatory requirements, we have to put um, a lot of, a lot of uh, collect a lot of data in our clinical trials. Um, for reimbursement purposes, we have to include several questionnaires. And we find that a lot of patients find these burdensome. Um, they don't want to come in and um, complete all of these, uh, these questionnaires. That's the reason that they're giving to us for wanting to discontinue, um, discontinue the trials. And we actually find in the real world, when we do real world studies, that um, we actually get fewer discontinuations in our real-world studies than we do in our clinical trials, where there are not so many, not so burdensome clinical trial procedures. Um, so we do, we do believe that um, 
the reason that the patient, we have to trust the patient, the patient is telling us that they're um, discontinuing the treatment due to the burden of uh, the trial. So I believe we have to, well, our view is that we have to believe the patient. Well, so, so you want to say is that due to the requirements of the HDA bodies, your studies become so complex <laughs> that you have so many discontinuations. I would disagree with that. Well, I, I was um, quite relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I thought that the dossier was actually not big enough. I think there were 20,000 tables missing, especially all the subgroup analysis. But, um, so, so for me, I think um, I strongly disagree with the while on treatment uh, approach because um, I think uh, when it's come to uh, reimbursement, um, I take the uh, efficacy and safety of a drug as a given. And then for me, what's important and for society, what's important is what happens to the overall population in this chronic disease over a long time, yeah? So, so uh, how does the new medication that enters into the market, how does it overall change the health of the population? And so for that reason, uh, a treatment policy strategy is what I would like to see. Um, you have a 52-week study, so that is reasonably long enough to uh, uh, say something about the long-term effects. Of course, something like a five-year study would be better, but, um, <laughs> well, we take that. Um, so, in terms of the endpoints, all the endpoints that you mentioned are patient-relevant, so, so that's, that's good. And I also like your approach in terms of looking into the, um, basically, the area under the curve over time, so what's the burden of the disease over time. But I think that is, comes back to the treatment policy. I would like to understand how your new medication kind of changes the burden of, uh, of the patient over a year. And um, I think that is important from a what, so, so what is the change in the benefit-risk profile over this time pe period? So um, as I need to make, in the end, a summary in terms of the benefits and the risks of this new kind of um, when this treatment enters the market, how does it change? I would need to see kind of the... Um, treatment policy um, estimate for both the efficacy and for the safety to make an overall conclusion on this estimate, or the kind of benefit-risk estimate uh, perspective. Um, for that reason, um, I think um, you need to be, uh, have a good plan for how you follow up patients after they stop the medication due to adverse event and efficacy uh, or lack of efficacy. I can understand that you can't follow up after they died. That's okay. Um, and I think for the um, withdrawals, I think you need to make, uh, come up with some reasonable um, assumptions of what happens thereafter to kind of show how the benefit-risk profile across the one year uh, uh, comes. And with that, of course, kind of, aside from those that died, you also have then for each patient the complete year. 
which makes, of course, some of the analysis things easier. Well, thank you, thank you for those comments. Um, one piece, if I could just ask you about, as we as a company are struggling with, obviously, um, as a reimbursement agency, uh, if the patient is not taking the treatment, you wouldn't be paying for it. So there would be no payment involved. So I'm struggling to quite understand why you're so eager for us to use a treatment policy strategy, whereas I thought you would be most interested in what actually happens when the patient is actually um, receiving the treatment because that's when they, you're actually having to reimburse the treatment. Well, you know, um, we need to reimburse the treatment anyway over the one year. Whether it's your treatment or whether it's a different treatment, we need to reimburse it anyway. So I'm interested in to... Okay, in Wonderland, we are more kind of on the medical focus, and currently that's the medical focus. The cost is, uh, uh, is uh, discussed in another, in the next step. So in this step, we only <laughs> talk about the, the, the benefit-risk. So, and the cost is actually then <coughs> discussed behind the scenes at a difference. <laughs> um, the, so, so from that point of view, it's, it's really important for me to understand how your treatment actually changes the overall health of the population. And um, that's the important thing. In terms of, you know, your comment regarding this um, seems to be a really super efficacious GSK drug, why didn't you consider to run a head-to-head -head study against it? But maybe that's another point. <laughs> <laughs> well... The difficulty with the, um, I mean, you, you raise a good point in terms of um, the alternative medication that's available. Um, it's not actually approved yet. That's only the, uh, there are publications out there in the public domain. Obviously, as the trial, when we start the trial, the, the medication may not be available. Um, this will only come onto the market and start to be used as the trial progresses. So that's what we're, that's where our concerns come from that point of view. But there are other treatments available. Um, there are currently no other biological treatments available for... Uh, but other treatments? Yes. There are other treatments, and that's the virtue of what we're doing um, in the sense that we're offering the patients maximal standard of care, um, and that's where the comparison is. The comparison is of our drug plus maximal standard of care against placebo plus maximal standard of care. The maximum standard of care that's available at the moment is triple therapy. And that's what concerns me about what I'm struggling with with your comments around we would have to reimburse anyway. Um, that's true. The only extra reimbursement is for the um, IL-99. It's not for the... It's not like they're going to go on to... If they stop the IL-99, they will only, only go on to proceed or the GSK drug if it's available. But, but we're not talking about cost here. We're talking about uh, the overall benefit-risk po sure. population thing. I think the patient wants to. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Wonderland, you know, we have a overall health, very good health system, so a patient don't need to care so much about uh, the cost for themselves. It's more kind of a societal issue. I, I will say that as a patient that's a candidate for this clinical trial, I've tried lots of other things, and I'm on these three medications now. These are what have worked the best for me, and I've tried all the other alternatives, and I'm down to nothing other than perhaps an experimental medication. So if this drug doesn't work for me in this trial or if it ever got approved, I would discontinue it, but I would be at the end of my rope. I would just 
um, I would just continue on my three medications. So there but, aren't a lot of other alternatives for me at the end of the, at the end of the disease line that I am at at this point in time. But, but what happens if you kind of you know if you take this medication for just one month, and then you after that you can't go back to your usual treatment. So you can't even you know even your treatments that now maybe not optimally work, but then is even worse working, not working at all anymore. And you need to be continuously hospitalized due to that. Yeah, so I, I have tried other medications on top of the three that I'm taking, and um, when they don't work, I want to know as quickly as possible. And if you know, if I can know in one month after one injection whether this is going to work or not, that would be great, because um, I could make my decision with my doctor quickly. If this drug were so deleterious that it caused my other existing treatments to be ineffective, I would hope that you wouldn't improve this drug, or it would be only approved with very serious ben or very significant benefits for for those who didn't have that problem. But I, I would really want to know that at the time my doctor prescribed it, so that I could make an informed decision that you might get a lot of benefit, or if you don't, this could actually reduce the effect of your other treatments. Those would be important. Well, I'm not trained in statistics, but I think you use the word test demands. <laughs> uh, well, maybe I can reassure you on that point. The, the regulators would ensure that the, the benefit risk was appropriately evaluated and so that I wouldn't agree with the approach taken on my right to evaluate the benefit of the drug in question. Obviously, well, the, I'm the, not, but, but they, I know you have a different yeah, viewpoint. I'm not evaluating the benefit of the drug. I'm evaluating no, 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 but the, I, but I the impact so, so of the drug right, so, Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so once they've got past that hurdle, then obviously there are other hurdles that need yep. to be gone through, which is a different, a different matter. Mm. So can we come back to just the question you raised um, about a treatment policy estimate for risk? Um, that's somewhat unusual um, in the reporting of clinical trials. Um, I haven't, we haven't as a company... Um, seen that done elsewhere. Is this a sort of new policy from the reimbursement agencies? Because traditionally um, safety is always assessed when you're actually taking the medication. So to, to view a treatment policy um, kind of approach, that might actually uh, underestimate any potential safety signals that we would see in the trial. So that worries us as a sponsor company. Well, as I said, the um, I, I think the to assess the safety of the drug itself is not my job. That's his job. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm interested in the overall safety of the population within this year. And if kind of, you know, if all your patients discontinue after one month and they have no side effects since this one month, and but because they take it, they have continue side effects for the rest of the 11 months, for the rest of the year, I think these side effects, you know, overall the population is worse off due to the new treatment being available in the market. I mean, you know, I think that is part of, will be part of our safety evaluation, as I said. Um, although the primary evaluation will be of events that happen on treatment, we will, of course, look very closely as a sponsor at events that occur once a patient is discontinued. But it would be very surprising to us to see um, any events in that period. Um, 
you know, going by, going by precedent. So I, we do struggle with this idea of a treatment policy um, I'd approach for safety because that could, you know, if there is, a, is a, a signal in terms of the adverse event profile, we would expect to see that while the patient is taking the treatment, not in the post-treatment period. By the way, um, for me, it doesn't matter whether you call it primary or secondary. You can have primary for, for him, and, you know, I take a secondary one. <laughs> and, of course, um, you know, as, as we know, for reimbursement agencies, we end up doing exactly what you want anyway, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> um, could I just raise one more issue? We're in the, a wonderful future now where the FDA publishes um, the analysis plans of, uh, of the competitors. So you're, you're aware that GSK are adopting a different strategy to this in their development plan. So, so how do you think um, us as a regulator, how are we going to cope with that when, if we approve that your drug using this S-demand and then another, someone else in the same class uses a different approach? How do you think we're going to handle that situation? I mean, you, you raise a very interesting question about um, how statistical <coughs> methods evolve over time. Um, and I think that's a very good point. You know, we are now in a situation where a lot of the old labels for a lot of the old drugs um, are based on estimates of treatment effect that were that used statistical methods that would now be seen as not optimal, shall we put that, give a different view on the efficacy of a drug. So some of the early labels in, in this field for, for the older drugs might have used that um, you know, uh, outdated form of analysis called LOCF, for example. Um, but I would be surprised if a regulator would now ask us to do an LOCF analysis just to match what we've been done in the past. So, similarly, so I think we have to realise science evolves, um, statistical science also evolves, and we should use, at any point, the best methods available to us at the time. Another example would be in the clinical arena. Um, if there was an old method of measuring blood pressure, so it was a blood pressure medication, um, and somebody had been labelled on the effects of, of that old method, and a new clinical um, method came along, which was a better way of um, expressing blood pressure, there wouldn't be a regulatory requirement to use the old method just because, simply because somebody had been um, labelled using the old method. So we believe we should use the best science that's available to us at the moment. No, I agree with that. It's just the fact that, I mean, GSK came last week and that that's when we approved <laughs> their approach. So, I'm, I'm, so I don't think it's moved that much in the week. But, uh, so, uh, well, but I think, I think maybe, maybe some of the GSK statisticians are a bit outdated. Yeah. <laughs> So, so in terms of, but, but that, that brings up a very important point, kind of, if you compare um, across different drugs, yeah, I think one of the nice things about the treatment policy is also that it's very, very easy to compare because you always compare the one year across the different drugs. Whereas if you have this while on strategy, where a while on treatment uh, strategy, you for one drug that has maybe, you know, an average exposure of know, six months and the other has nine months, you compare, you know, completely different things. You don't, you know, isn't, isn't it much more better to kind of have a same kind of basis in terms of uh, what you compare? Well, actually, I, I would in, I'd, I'd entirely agree with you that um, we should try and have the same basis for comparisons. But 
as a sponsor, our view is actually you get a much fairer comparison if you're talking about while on treatment as an estimate. Well, what's the treatment Hear me out. The treatment policy approach will depend on the pattern of treatment discontinuations in that specific trial. So it only applies if you have to uh, assume that in the real world or when a patient takes it, the pattern of discontinuations that you observe in that specific trial is reflected in the, in when people actually take it. And that might be dependent on um, you know, what countries, what regions you um, run your trial in. Whereas a while on treatment one will be more stable in that sense because it's reflecting what, people, what actually happens when the patient's are actually taking the treatment. And in that sense, to, as a sponsor, we view that as a more um, accurate comparison. Um, thank you very much uh, for that interesting discussion. Uh, you will get the opportunity to have some final remarks to maybe conclude some of these open thoughts that you have, but I would like to give the opportunity to the audience uh, to actually ask questions to either uh, our regulatory colleague, HDA colleague, the patient, or even the, the sponsor. Any questions or comments from the audience on anything that you have heard so far? Uh, I noticed that you proposed two identical studies. Is this simply to satisfy the needs of FDA and EMA in their guidelines that we ask for two studies, or do do you not understand that we actually ask for a sequential approach where you could adapt your second study to the findings of the first study, and that should be some kind of conformatory setting? I guess that's a question to the sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> as as patient-first um, pharmaceuticals, um, we, are, we are very concerned about the suffering of, our, of patients with COPD. And it's very important to us that if we have developed a new medication, that we get this medication to patients as soon as we can. Um, the reproach you're outlining would mean a substantial delay um, in, getting the, in getting this important new medication to the patients because we would have to run our two confirmatory trials sequentially. That would delay um, approval and it would delay a patient like Steve actually receiving that medication. So to us, as patient-first pharmaceuticals, we want to run our two pivotal trials in parallel. Thank you. Any additional questions or comments? We have one over here in the middle. Can we learn what the GSK solution to this problem has been? Or, or you referred that the GSK approach was different to the one being proposed. Can we know more about that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, GSK have got two proposals because the FDA made them do treatment policy and, and the EMA then said that they would prefer some hypothetical strategy. Uh, one, the one that I alluded to where um, patients who withdraw and then there's some sort of placebo imputation for them. Mm. So that, that was the alternative approach that may be a possibility here. Mm. Thank you. Any additional questions or comments from the audience? We have one on the back. Again, for the sponsor, you're proposing a while-on-treatment approach. Could you clarify um, whether you're taking the time on treatment into account in that? I think there are two versions of that approach. One where if you're longer on treatment, you have a better, better score like an AUC, 
and the other where you take a kind of an average. That's the clarification. I have a question following. <laughs> yes, I mean, I mean it, it is a good question, and then we, we're getting into the sort of the estimation side of it. Um, for the exacerbation uh, rate, it does take into account, um, as I said earlier, in the negative binomial, it does take into account the length of um, follow-up that a, a patient's been followed up for exacerbations. So that is accounted for in the analysis. In terms of the quality of life endpoint, um, you, know, you, you can view an AUC essentially as a, if you average it, if you divide an AUC by the, by the time, um, an AUC essentially gives you a, a, mean, a weighted mean of, of time points. We prefer the kind of simplest solution of an average across the time points for the SGRQ measurement. And in that analysis, um, Yes, we would have, it would be in terms of the estimator, whether you weighted every patient equally, or then if you added extra weight to patients who'd been, who'd been uh, followed for longer. Those are, perhaps one would be a primary analysis and perhaps one would be a sensitivity analysis for that particular um, estimate. And I have to ask for further clarification, I'm afraid. The, you say that the, the time observed will be taken into account in the negative binomial. How exactly would it be taken into account? Would it be, would you be having an offset or in your model or not? Yes, I mean, to get into the technical details, yeah, it's a, um, the time on treatment in the generalised linear model you can put um, as an offset variable and obviously your um, outcome variable is the number of exacerbations. So this is a kind of a an hypothetical estimate then, I would think. No, I don't. I, 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 think, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting point in terms of um, the analysis of exacerbations. But essentially what you're doing is summarising the while on treatment measurements rather than um, extrapolating outside of the, of the observed period. So my view um, is that it's actually an estimator for a while on treatment estimate rather than for a hypothetical you can then make the extrapolation assumption that if the rate was the same for the periods that you haven't observed, um, you could then translate that into a hypothetical estimate. But what you're doing then is adding that extra step of extrapolating to the, to the unobserved periods, and then it would become a hypothetical estimate. Thank you. I think we have another question. Uh, we have two questions over here, so maybe we... Oh, In the front, and then we go to the left. Um, a question to the HTA representative. I'm struggling to understand this treatment policy approach and the remark that you need to reimburse treatments for one year anyway because after the discontinuation, patients may start new investigational drugs that you will never reimburse, like this GSK drug if it fails, for instance. So shouldn't you actually distinguish between therapies, uh, post-treatment therapies that are on the market and those that are still investigational that you may never reimburse in, in future? So, of course, only the a very small fraction of the overall COPD population will be in a clinical trial. Uh, that might be different for actually certain other indications, but, but um, for in generally we only look into um, medications that are um, approved. So, um, the, and the only medications that we, that, yeah, 
we only look into approved medication because also the new ex now experimental drug by the time we look at it will be approved or should be approved otherwise we don't need to look at it so, so um, any kind of follow up experimental things don't fall into kind of my, my remit anyway thank you for that we have another question and then we move to Anya Mark. So, a uh, question to the sponsor around the uh, while on treatment strategy. My understanding around these drugs is limited, but as I understand it, it takes a while for them to start working, and th late effects or side effects could, could also manifest a while after you may, may have stopped the drug. Uh, so, are you worried that, for example, a patient might observe the drug is not working, stops taking the drug, and only then has an exacerbation, or similarly with adverse events? Are you worried that these could be missed because the, the patient first stops and then the event is reported? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, perhaps we could bring the patient in at some point. Um, <laughs> but I mean, obviously, it, it is a concern um, that, um, you know, you have, the drug will, will have to have a chance to work. I think, given the, given the, the chronic nature of the disease, um, most patients would... Um, expect to take the, take the medication for a certain period of time. We, we expect that um, certainly within a month or two months um, for the patients for whom the, the drug is working they will start to see an effect, that's what we hope. Um, regarding delayed uh, side effects, as I said, um, we, we're not anticipating that this drug will cause many side effects anyway, but of course we will look very closely at the post-treatment data that we collect, we have agreements with the regulatory authorities in terms of how long to follow up patients, uh, you know, even those who complete the uh, course of randomised treatment in terms of looking at um, adverse events following discontinuation of treatment. That will be part of our safety package. We will look at that very thoroughly. But we're not anticipating that there will be um, any safety signals once a patient uh, discontinues the medication. Thank you, Oliver. Another question by Anja? Yeah, I would like to ask the one person that we haven't heard that much, the patient. Um, taking your list, one to five, yeah. A, do you think that the study will address anything of relevance for you? And B, having heard the discussion, are you any wiser? And do you think that any of them is actually taking your major concerns into account? Uh, thank you for the question. First, I think you all need to be committed to an asylum for this. Oh, no, I'm... <clears throat> Uh, I'll tell you what matters to me in plain English words. When I take this treatment, what can I expect will happen to me? If there is some latent adverse event effect or some rebound effect of withdrawal from the medication, I want to know that because that's what happens to me when I take this medication or when I stop taking this medication. So that's what I want to know. If it doesn't work for me, if I have an adverse event, what happens next is between me and my doctor and our choice of other medications and how I manage my life and my disease. But I would like as clear and concisely as possible when I take this medication, what can I expect if I continue to take it? And if I stop taking it, are there any of these, um, as you've discussed, latent effects or uh, withdrawal effects or rebound effects or whatever? Because I consider that as things that happen to me when I take this medication. So that's, that's what I want to know. That's what I want to know in, in kind of plain English. Mm. Thank you, and thank you for the great question to bring it all back together. Is there any other burning question? Because otherwise, um, 
Doesn't seem so. So then I would like to give um, one minute to each one of you. Really just one minute. I have this one. Um, <laughs> so uh, you're welcome to step out of your role. So if you have any, um, any, uh, any comments that you want to uh, make out of this uh, discussion, then uh, please do so. I would like to start with uh, our regulatory representative from the ne Netherlands. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, you know, so stepping out of the role, I hope it's given you an insight on how difficult it is in practice to do this. Um, and, and hearing Steve, be amazed if any study could answer all of those questions. And so we are fooling ourselves when we try and say that. So it would be much better if we said this trial is answering this question and then there are s several unanswered questions that still need to be addressed elsewhere. And maybe that would be, as Anya said, maybe two separate trials here looking at slightly different aspects would be a better thing for the patient, not for the company, uh, because it would delay the, the time it would got on the market, but it, it might be better for the patient in the long run. I agree, the future patients, I clarify that, not for the person who's sick now, but the one who's sick tomorrow, which is more complicated, and my time's probably up. Mm. Thank you. No, you actually still have eight seconds. So. <laughs> um, Alexander. So, so I'm HTA body of Wonderland, and Wonderland yeah. because you actually have the possibility to discuss with the HTA body up front before you <laughs> run the study uh, what your estimate strategy is, um, which is, I think, usually not the case. And Wonderland for a second reason, because the HTA body knows what estimates they want to have, uh, and they have a very, very clear point of view on that, which also does not necessarily the case yet, or usually, I think, is not the case yet. So I think it's really, really important for, if you go into these kind of discussions, to be prepared to explain very, very detailed what all the different different uh, things are and to train yourself on that. Because otherwise you may end up in a very, very kind of circle discussion where you have different estimates for, for different endpoints and, um, yeah, get very confused over time. Thank you. Steve, over to you. Uh, yeah, so in preparing for this, I went to the Indiana University Medical School and talked to people in their lung clinic, a uh, physician and some patients and others who work there, to get these, some of these perspectives. So I was trying to reflect them faithful, faithfully. When I stepped back and looked at the comments that I got from the patients and summarized to prepare for this, they live in the conditional world. If I take this drug, if I have an adverse event, if I, it doesn't work for me, right? And they don't care about the unconditional ITT, what happens overall in everything when you mush it all together, right? So that's one thing. The second was, um, at the end of my long conversation with the transplant physician who does lung transplants in COPD and um, uh, cystic fibrosis patients, um, I described to him the so-called tripartite estimate. Maybe you know the stuff that Muna, Frank Bretz, and I wrote and published a couple years ago. And I presented that to him. What if we came to you out of every clinical trial with the framework of here's the proportion of patients who discontinue due to adverse events and descriptions of those adverse events? What's the proportion of patients that discontinue due to lack of efficacy? And how long did you have to wait to determine that there was this lack of efficacy? And then if you can take your medication for its described per duration, um, what, is the, what is the treatment effect for efficacy and safety? He loved it. He loved number one and two. He said, I never get that from pharma companies. And number three which is not an intent-to-treat analysis, he said, 
isn't that what you give me anyway? Uh, this kind of, if I take the drug? And we said, no, that's not exactly the estimate that shows up uh, in the literature. So anyway. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Oliver, over to you. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think one of the main advantages of the Estimans framework is that it has allowed this discussion of alternative ways of analyzing trials rather than the strict ITT approach. Um, I think the while on treatment estimand has got a little bit lost in some of the discussions, and that's why I wanted to bring it forward today as, a, as an important strategy for people to discuss. As Steve said, I think most patients and prescribers don't realize that what the treatment estimate that they're labeled for at the moment is an average of people who've taken a drug and not taken a drug. I'm sure the media doesn't when they present um, the treatment effects of drugs. The assumption is that's what happens when you actually take the, the drug. So I think there's an important role, um, whether it be primary or not, there's an important role for the while on treatment as demand for clinical trials. Thank you very much, Oliver, and thank you to the whole panel for this very interesting discussion, which I think has highlighted that different stakeholders may very well be interested in different estimates. Thanks for highlighting that. Um, and, yeah, so please join me in thanking uh, the nice panel for the discussion. Um, so... <laughs> With that being said, I think it's clear that there will be follow-up discussions on that. Maybe next year we can get the GSK uh, people come to present on their respiratory drugs. So thank you again for joining at this early hour after the gala dinner. And uh, yeah, please enjoy the rest of the conference. So thanks again. show was created in association with PSI. Thanks for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. And don't forget to sign up for the webinar. You can find it at theeffectivestatistician.com slash leadership webinar. Lots of great things that you need to actually implement what you learn from this episode. So, Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.